Jerry Ratcliffe here with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Chris Magnus is the progressive police chief for Tucson, Arizona, where he and his department are pioneering a number of innovative approaches to social problems affecting the city. Find out more in this episode at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Hi folks, two quick housekeeping announcements. I'll be in Baltimore, Maryland running a police commander's crime reduction course from the 11th to the 13th of March. There are a handful of places available for folk from other agencies, so if you have any interest, and if you have seen The Wire, why wouldn't you, then sign up at reducingcrime.com events. Also, if you have any interest in evidence-based policing, don't forget that the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing will be having their annual meeting in Washington, D.C., June 1st and 2nd. Details can be found at americansebp.org. My guest for this episode is Chris Magnus. He's the police chief for Tucson, Arizona. He's previously served as the chief in Fargo, North Dakota, yep, that Fargo, and Richmond, California. Prior to these leadership roles, he was a police dispatcher, paramedic, and sworn officer with the Livingston County Sheriff's Department and the Lansing, Michigan Police Department. Chris was the first openly gay police chief in the country to marry. He also achieved some notoriety and support when photographed with a Black Lives Matter sign at a local protest in Richmond. Chris is known for being a pioneer of innovative solutions to complicated social problems and is an advocate for less draconian approaches to issues such as immigration and homelessness, arguing that they complicate the challenges of modern policing. I talked to him in a hallway at the IACP, International Association of Chiefs of Police, conference in Chicago in October 2019. He talks about moving away from a reflexive arrest approach to all policing problems, the challenges of dealing with service providers in non-crime areas, and working with city politics. I find out that the Tucson area, while quite beautiful, is also full of shit with weird names that can kill you, like Haboobs and Havelinas. I love doing the interviews and I love meeting, you know, talking to people, which is great. And I think it's a great way to chat to practitioners and to get stuff outside beyond academia. But then the editing is like multiple hours for yeah. like a 45 that, minute right. kind I've of gig. Heard, so. Yeah, I believe that. I no, talk, I get it. It takes a lot of editing to make me not sound like an idiot. I doubt that somehow. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been in Tucson now? About four years. Four years. It's gone quickly. Yeah. Well, some days it goes really quickly and, and other days perhaps not so much. <laughs> What's interesting is that it seems like you're at the forefront of some of these changes that have been taking place at policing, because we're here at IACP, and it, there's hardly anything to, it's almost like there's hardly anything to do with crime. It's now about officer wellness, it's now about mental health, and it's now about, you know, public safety much more than crime. It's as if we're going, okay, I'm not that worried about crime, because we've got homelessness and we've got people with behavioral health crises all over the place, and you seem to be dealing with so much of that because people want to be in Tucson because it's warm. Right. It does seem to be a landing spot, if not uh, even more than that, for a lot of folks who struggle with, whether it's mental health, uh, substance abuse disorder of one sort or another, or uh, homelessness, sometimes all three. We have a fair amount of that. I would make the case that it does 
uh, those things do link to crime to some degree. I mean, we certainly see that with yeah. the addiction stuff that drives a lot of our property crime. So that's challenging to figure out if you're in, if you have an impact on getting people into treatment or dealing with the, with the substance abuse, are you having an impact on the crime? Because a lot of otherwise it does seem like you're just sort of repeating the cycle of arresting people for low level property offenses. They go to jail briefly, they come back out and they just recommit the crime over and over again. So I'm not sure any of it we have solid right. you know, data to work with, but uh, you do see a pattern. Do you think that Tucson is a magnet for people with, a, with comorbidity kind of problems? I think it is. Uh, Weather-wise, it is certainly appealing for people, although during the summer I have a hard time quite understanding that because it is so hot that it's hard for me to believe that that can really be well, I'm a bit confused about the weather. I don't know if I told you the first time I ever went to Tucson. I didn't mean to come to Tucson. I was supposed to land at Phoenix, to, you know, between California to Phoenix, Phoenix to Philadelphia. And we couldn't land at Phoenix because there was a bloody dust storm. There was a sandstorm. Was it right. a haboob? They call them haboobs. Yeah. Oh my God, that, that should, nobody should live where that's a thing. That's, <laughs> we diverted to Tucson. I think, who lives in a place? where there is just a wall of sand, hundreds of feet high, sweeping across the city. That just doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't seem right. And that must Tucson, have a huge impact on the homeless and people living on the streets, doesn't it? Yeah, Tucson, we're a little different than the, than the Phoenix Valley in terms of some of those issues. It really is a world in and of itself. But we have what they call washes, which is this term, I guess, for sort of ditches where when the monsoons come through with the heavy rains in you know, July, August, September, the water flows. But during most of the year, they're empty and they tend to be a little cooler. And so it's interesting, homelessness is diffused. You know, rather than in some cities where you see it concentrated in very specific areas, Tucson is so large geographically. Homelessness is really diffused across the city. You see it in parks, you see it in these washes, in alleys behind homes. It's very challenging because there, there are a few central points where you can just say we're going to focus resources or attention on this one spot. So you have monsoon seasons, you have for boobs. Is there a plague of locust seasons that you're just trying to escape town not, from? Not that I'm aware of, but you know, when I came, when I moved to Arizona, they sort of referring to, I think, the natural environment. They said, uh, in Arizona, everything will kill you, you know, and it's like there's a combination of, you know, javelinas, uh, which are like these wild boars that roam even the nicest neighborhoods. Sorry, what? No, yeah, look at a javelina, it starts with a J. They look like some prehistoric wild pig. They roam around sometimes in packs. Well, this sounds absolutely terrifying, but to be fair, you've been coming to IACP for many years, so you must be used to wild boars, right? Oh, I've, I've experienced one or two here. Uh, you don't want to mess with them when Good the mom grief. is pregnant, you know. So you have those. You have birds of prey that are known to even swoop down and take small dogs up with them. This has happened in the you area where I live. You are fucking kidding me. No, I'm not kidding. It's serious. I mean, they're really, and then, of course, the, the snakes. You should vote for the and, Tucson Tourism Board. <laughs> No, it's it's really, I think, and as you have seen from being in Tucson, it's funny because there are many neighborhoods that are have a better tree cover and are greener than some of the cities I've lived in. 
in other parts of the country. They're really, it's a, it's a pretty nice city all in all. But it is, you know, in terms of, again, the homelessness, it's, it provides an environment where it must be attractive for people who have this combination of issues. And so we're dealing with it pretty much in every neighborhood throughout the city. Some departments are only having to focus on one area. For us, it doesn't matter what part of the city you patrol, you're dealing with these challenges and there are crime issues that come along with it. So trying to figure out what the balance is between enforcement, providing services, doing what we're doing more of now, pre-arrest deflection, getting people into treatment who have small amounts of drugs rather than taking them into jail. All of these are things we're, we're kind of experimenting with. You see sometimes promising results, but the challenge is, and you know this well, this issue of cause effect is is what you're doing really contributing to the solution or are you just fortunate that things are changing for some unknown reason, right? So, So have you run into objections? Have you run into resistance with your move towards things like pre-arrest diversion programs and some of these de-incarceration programs that you're really pioneering in some regards with your, uh, should we just say, troubled population? You know, we had anticipated that the objections would come from more of the officers. You know, officers saying, this is ridiculous. Now we're supposed to be picking up folks and taking them into treatment. Why aren't we arresting people? Isn't that our job as law enforcement? But to our surprise, it's not really been that way. I'm not saying this has caught on with everybody in the department. And we're still experimenting with sort of how we sell and explain this to people and then what buy-in looks like. But we're finding that a lot of the most senior officers who you would think would be the most resistant to doing this differently. I don't like what, saying, how we're doing it, but I don't like change either. Well, those the, guys. But yeah, that group has been surprisingly open to this because a lot of them are saying, I feel like all I'm doing is arresting the same people over and over right. again. And yes. so what's the point that. I know that isn't working, so maybe it is time to try something else. And there's, there's, a, well, there's signs. a bunch of research that shows that, you know, once somebody's been arrested once, their chance of being rearrested is about 30%. Right. Once they've been arrested twice, rearrest chance of being a third time is 50%. Right. And then each time they're arrested, until you reach the point where it's kind of, once you've been arrested 10, 11, 12 times, your chance of being arrested the 13th time it's like 85, 90%. We just keep arresting them. We just keep doing it. And, it, and it's really a cycle that you can see. I mean, I, I was a victim of this myself, interestingly. And of course, it gets lots of attention when the police chief is a victim. But my city car, I made the mistake of leaving my backpack in it when I got home late one night. I thought you were about to tell me you got arrested 13 times. Not, not that. Not to my knowledge. But You would uh, have remembered, right? I, I don't remember. And if I did, I deny it all. Um, <laughs> yeah, I stupidly left my backpack in the back seat and came out in the morning and uh, somebody had smashed a rock through the window and taken it. And I was fortunate because, and I'm sure got the chief's treatment. I didn't ask for it, but I got it anyway where, you know, the crime scene folks came out and took fingerprints and they, people, they looked through the neighborhood and found, of course, whoever, this guy that had done it had broken into a bunch of other cars as well. And they eventually found the backpack with blood on it and they did a rapid DNA test on 
on the blood. Holy schmoly, you really did get it. I did get, you the, get the special it. treatment, right? Didn't you just? No, I, I, I did. There's no question about it. You know, There's homicides in Baltimore that don't get this level no, of attention. I, 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 I hear you. And I, and I feel, in a way, you know, I feel sort of bad about it because my comments back to within the department where I'd like every member of the community to get that level of service. Wouldn't and we're, we're working towards that. But ultimately, it led up to them identifying who this guy was and then tracking him down. And on Facebook, somebody made friends with him, representing that they were a woman who was interested in hooking up with him. They went over to his apartment, and sure enough, there he was, and, and they arrested him. But I guess my point is, he, he's a good example of someone with a, a drug problem, and that's all that was driving it. There was nothing. And was was he originally it. from your area, or who's name? He, he was in the. He lived, you know, on the east side of town. It wasn't particularly close to his home, but it was a neighborhood that presented a lot of convenient targets. Yeah, and, when uh, when I went for a ride yeah. along in in Tucson with one of your officers, and he was great, by the way, because you know I like to go for ride alongs right, pretty right. much anywhere I go, because right. it, it really gives you a lot of insight into a city when you've yes, not been there before. Agreed. It's 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 really I think that one of the best ways to to really understand a city. You can stare at data, but actually just rolling down some of those back alleyways, you get a better right. picture. Oh, of it. you absolutely do. Because when people say people live in poverty, you have no idea what poverty looks like. That's poverty right. in Southern California is very different than poverty in Philly. Poverty in Philly and how you live there is very different than poverty in Tucson. Well, and people have this image of Tucson of resorts and, you know, they see the mountains and the spas and that kind of thing. And they don't realize there were that... There mountains and spas? Yeah, I'm sorry you missed out on that. Perhaps I missed the spas. future <laughs> visit, uh, we can, we'll see what we can do for you. But yeah, they don't realize that much of the city really is very, very poor. You know, you have neighborhoods where people, even in the homes that they live in, are struggling to get by. And then they, as you say, you go to the alleys behind their homes, you see makeshift structures that are set up, you know, and this is where the homeless are. Not, it's not an exact correlation, but a lot of them are struggling with drug or alcohol issues. And then that drives a lot of our property crimes. So you're finding that you're getting more support than you were perhaps anticipating? I think we are. It is still hard to get cops out of this almost reflexive approach of thinking that all crime is best addressed by just making arrests. And you know, okay, on the one hand, it piles up stats that I suppose are attractive. Perhaps Look how busy I am. Look how hard I right, worked. Right. And I get it. I certainly lived it for years and years as a cop in Lansing, Michigan, where I started the idea that everybody who goes to jail is a small victory for victims of crime, for doing the right thing, for you know, just taking the bad guys off the street. But at some point you do wise up, I think. When the bad guy gets yeah. out on the street quicker than you do at that right. point. No, that's exactly it. You start to see that perhaps this approach is not really having much of an impact on things. And so then the question becomes, what does have an impact? And that is more challenging because I'm not sure we've really figured that out yet. There's a very interesting randomized control trial out in the medical field about homeless using the emergency room as their primary care provider. Right. And so because the hospital's wanting to reduce costs, they give them the minimal treatment and send them back out again. Right. And so a doctor tried to do something different, said as to wraparound services, when they come in, we'll give them everything that we've got and we'll you know, look after all of their collective needs. And what they discovered was, contrary to everybody's view, that it actually reduced the amount of time that those people came in. There was a cost benefit because those people didn't really want to be in the emergency room like a lot of people thought they would. They actually just were coming in there to have a few things dealt with. And when they got better care, they spent less time in there and ultimately cost the hospital less money. 
No. But can you imagine me, the person trying to do that? I, I kind of see guys like yourself a little bit in policing trying to be that same level of pioneer where everybody just goes, well, I ain't going to fucking work. Right. You know, we right. need to just keep arresting these people more and you're trying something new. And it, it can be a challenge to communicate this in the right way within a police department because there is no question there are people that need to go to jail because oh, yeah. they're dangerous, they're violent. They really have done serious stuff, you know. Sure, I'm all for rehabilitation, but let's first put them behind bars where they're not going to harm anybody else. So it's not about saying nobody goes to jail anymore. This is the 21st century in America. You can't have nuance in a program. What are you talking I, I about? Know. And that's very hard because, let's face it, it's not just cops. It's our communities at large don't particularly do well with nuance when it comes to criminal justice. And yet that's what it really takes. I think of it sometimes even in terms of a, of a medical model where if, if you have a problem, a gastrointestinal problem, and you, you're dealing with a specialist, you don't want them just going in and throwing the kitchen sink at, at your medical problem. You really want it diagnosed appropriately, and then you want a very specialized approach where if you need surgery or something has to be done, it's done in the most precise way to get at the problem. We're it's evidence-based, but it's also tailored That's to the, right. the specific. Tailored to the specific need. And we're not very good surgeons sometimes. We're reasonably good generalists, but sometimes a problem that's really complicated requires precision. And I'm not sure we train our cops to be that precise. We're not patient with them to the degree that sometimes patience is needed to solve complicated problems. We look for very traditional measures of what an outcome should be because we're police executives. We're often under stress from the community. They want to see more arrests. They just want to see numbers go in a certain direction quickly. You come to learn over time that's not really the best way to treat the patient if the community is the patient. <laughs> Talking about taking time is really interesting. So in the book I wrote, Reducing Crime, a companion for police leaders, which I know a lot of your officers have now. That's right. There's a vignette from a cop in the UK, and he was writing about dealing with a runaway uh, that was a, a continual problem for the police department should go missing on such a regular basis. And they would find her and return her and find her and return her and find her and return her. And singly, she was just a big drain on police services because she was right. going missing every day. And they eventually sort of stopped and sat down and spent hours with her trying to get to the root of the problem and actually figuring out why she was running away on a regular basis. And I thought it was a really innovative solution. But when I followed through on the, the tweet storm, as it were, and all the replies, there were no shortage of cops saying, you know, this was disgraceful because I'm sure the call stacked up. How are you not supporting your other officers? As if dealing with all the calls in a timely fashion has become policing as opposed to solving problems. No, that's exactly right. And we struggle with that so much in Tucson where Officers come to work and there are as many as 10, 20, 30 or more calls that are waiting for them right from the get-go. And that then becomes the measure of what policing is about or what productivity looks like is how getting through your calls, making sure the board is clear as it were. And this drives me insane because this becomes time consuming, but what I would really like the time to be spent on, and so this is a balancing act, is you know we know, for example, whether we're dealing with shooters in a gang type environment, prolific shooters, whether we're dealing with prolific users of EMS and emergency rooms, that kind of thing. These are manageable numbers of people in most cities. And in many cases, we can identify who they are when I was in Richmond, California, we knew who the worst of the worst in terms of gang violence 
who those perpetrators were. Maybe you have, you know, 500 some shootings within a year, but they're committed by as small a number as 75 individuals. And out of that, the influencers are an even smaller number, the really serious shooters. And so you can, you know who they are and you can focus on that. Just like we know who these individuals are that are committing a lot of these property crimes because they're the same ones that are in and out of the emergency rooms, in and out of the police cars and the EMS vehicles. We don't provide enough time and resources to go after people in a thoughtful and strategic way. I think part of the objection there from some members of the community is that we're investing hugely in people that they see as not deserving of that level of investment. Well, and that's fine. They may feel that way. If you want to make judgment about where somebody's ended up in their life or what their behavior looks like, I don't ask anybody in the community or even in the department to have sympathy. To me, it really comes down to a cost-benefit analysis. This is not supposed to be a reward, and it's not being used as that. It's a way to try and reduce the costs of the criminal justice system. That's precisely right. And so, you know, rather than chasing the same people around over and over again, if we identify who they are. And then I think this is a really important piece because here's where I think cops have a really legitimate complaint is why are we doing all of this by ourselves? That's very true. I think that we have to have better partners in the community working with us that are helping us address these, which is why I like the idea of being able to team cops up with social workers or clinicians, mental health providers, substance abuse specialists. We're not even trained to deal with this wide range of need that's out there that has to be addressed, yet we're looked to as, you know, as the go-to folks for all of this. And And how on earth did that happen? How is it that we almost allowed all these other social services to withdraw from their responsibilities and just policing became the thing? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the idea that this has to be a partnership that involves other service providers. And I don't think, in Tucson, for example, I don't think it's because there's a lack of committed service providers. I really don't. You don't have to say that. They're not going to be listening in. It doesn't matter. I would say it. I I say it, and I believe it. I don't think it's a lack of committed service providers. I think the problem is that they are not well-coordinated in terms of being able to work as a partner with the police. When Chuck Ramsey was commissioner in Philadelphia, one of his favorite phrases that I used to love was, he would say, I love it when I can get other branches of government to spend their money to solve my problem. And I think part of the challenge is not their lack the lack of capacity, but just the lack of direction and working together so that they can know where to spend those resources that actually yeah. benefits the broader system. No, I think that's right. I think the problem is so many of these services are so siloed, whether it's in government or even whether it's in the private nonprofit world. It's almost as if there's a disincentive for them to work together because they fear that they may lose influence or donors. Unpack that for me a second. A disincentive, really a disincentive? Let me give an example of this and how we changed it, but how difficult it was. There's a a model called Family Justice Center. The idea is that for victims of domestic abuse, instead of having to go to a domestic services program or maybe uh, services for uh, sexual assault or for legal aid, it turns out that if you need help as a victim of these types of crimes, 
you can be going from one place to another all over a city right. or county. It is incredibly complicated if you have children or if you are economically disadvantaged, it becomes even worse. And well, so we like to victimize people multiple times. Precisely. And so one of the answers to this is this family justice center model where you get all of these different service providers. They're not necessarily linked together by the same funding. They're really distinct nonprofits or even a combination of governmental programs and nonprofits, but the idea is they operate under one roof and they work together with one focus in mind, and that is to serve victims. Right. Now, this sounds like it would be so logical and so easy, but the challenge is that to keep something like a family justice center operating, it has to have its own funding stream, which means all those agencies have to work together to do that. They all have to contribute something, but they also have to give up something in order to govern together and to work effectively. Because money that goes there doesn't necessarily go, go to those to, to the motherships. Agencies, precisely. I give this example because this model, this family justice center model has worked more effectively, but we have not seen a comparable model for coming together to provide services to folks with substance abuse, mental health, and homelessness. I remember seeing Jeremy Travis from Arnold Ventures giving a really interesting presentation. I think about what I think is related to like million dollar men, few people who in a city right. had cost you know, a million dollars in terms right. of not just policing, but also emergency room, mental health provision, courts and jails, etc. And these are individuals that are costing cities an absolute fortune. But, but part of that is because there is no one clearinghouse or resource to provide overall case management of these folks. They're not on parole, typically, or probation. There's not one sort of controlling entity. So, you know, you have hospitals, you have police, you have social service agencies, you have mental health providers, all who may be in their own uh, separate way interacting with any of these individuals, but it's not done in a coordinated way. It's very siloed and fragmented. And do you also run into different ideologies about how people should be treated? Absolutely, and in fact, that's a great question and a huge challenge. Let's just take even in Tucson right now. So you have a very well-intentioned nonprofit that is linked up with a gospel rescue mission, and they've raised massive amounts of money to convert an old Holiday Inn into a services center for homeless individuals. How do you tell the difference? You know, but they the, just change the sign on the outside. <laughs> yeah, they've had to do a little more than that. But but you know, it's I'm sorry, Holiday Inn. I love you. Yes, yeah, I know. Now, no, no offense there. But here's the thing. A center like this has its own rules. They're privately funded so they can do whatever they want. They don't have to collect data. They don't have to evaluate their program. They can be very limiting in terms of like, if you come to our center, families cannot be together. Men and women have to be separated, for example, um, or perhaps you have to be sober. They have their own rules. Now, I'm not, I get it. I'm not trying to diminish even the value of what they're doing. But I'm just saying this is a siloed approach to dealing with a clientele that this may not be the best fit for them and it may not really improve Well, you say you, you get it, but I actually don't. I'm actually offended by that because just the very idea that you can provide all these services without any kind of evaluation just because it's privately funded, I mean, that could be inherently harmful. They could be making things worse. 
but they're drawing people away from places where, and possibly resources, especially if they're getting external funding, could be drawing people away from places where they could actually improve the quality of their life. Oh, I'm, not, right. I'm not saying no, that I, they're not, but I, I'm... I, but I, well, when I say I get it, I get it because, like so many efforts of this type, it is well-intentioned, they sincerely believe in what they're doing, and there is a clientele that they're serving. You know, is it But it's the fingers crossed approach. It is the fingers crossed approach. Crime reduction. And for example, when we look at housing this population, uh, we know there is data that shows a housing first model has better outcomes. Getting people into stable housing with wraparound services, not easy to do. Easy to say. Sounds so easy to say. Uh, But again, that is a better model to get long term better outcomes. However, it also requires that agencies really have to step away from their silos. Even a community like Tucson, where we have a lot of services and a lot of smart people, we are not as well connected to do this type of work as we should be. And so you end up having a lot of this sort of effort like you're describing, where it's a wing and a prayer and you're hoping that it leads to better outcomes, but you have no reason to know for sure. That piece about ideology also plagues the criminal justice system. You know, you, you run into judges who refuse okay. to engage in evidence-based programs. Well, who because keep they sending believe people. they know what's best. And the fingers crossed approach. The criminal justice system seems to be so much of this. We do so much as cops because it just intrinsically feels like it's the right response. We just believe that we've been doing it forever. It has. That's how we were trained. We know, know best. We know best. And we see that from prosecutors, we see that from judges, we see this from service providers, and so how do we get people to a place where they start considering evidence, really evidence, not just as a slogan, but evidence-based outcomes where you are gathering data and discovering what works, and sometimes more importantly, what doesn't work, so you can change systems to do this. We're trying to do this more and more within the police department. And I will not say it's easy. I will concede you meet a lot of resistance. But I think we are making some progress, especially around certain issues. I think evidence-based policing, and you're right, in too many places, it's a slogan. That's all it is. It becomes like saying that you do community policing. I was just going to say, it's like the new version of community policing, right? Everybody does it because it means anything and therefore everything. And, And that's really frustrating. You really have to be smarter about doing things that lead to different kinds of outcomes. And part of this has to involve educating the community as well, because they come to expect that a measure of good policing success is how fast, for example, a cop comes to take the report of their shed behind the house being broken into sometime last week. It's becoming the core of what policing is. You know, we have so much evidence about things like hotspots policing. We have no evidence about dealing with these vulnerable populations. Right. There's, there's such a limited body of evidence. And so what we're vulnerable to is, in the absence of evidence, the opinion of random members of the public at council meetings and city hall meetings and members of city council is unfortunately just as valid because in the absence of an evidence base, we can't say, no, that's not actually the case. Right. And, and so then what you also see happen is it's sort of the throw everything at the wall type approach. 
and I've been lucky. I don't have this so much in Tucson, so I'm pretty fortunate, but I've certainly seen in a lot of other places where crime starts to creep up or complaints start to come in about issues, for example, with homeless encampments or other things, and it becomes the, okay, well, just do something, do, do something. And so, you know, the police are then put into this circumstance where they have to react with really no consideration of, well, will it work? Is it sustainable? Does it do anything more than just temporarily disrupt or, or relocate the problem? Police as problem solvers in the field, but even police leadership are not given enough time to even really try something, to give it a chance to yeah. properly succeed or fail. And even when something fails, you want to be able to have the time to figure out, well, why did this fail so we don't keep doing it over and over again, right? Because, because of course, when it becomes an issue finally for city council, they are pushing for a solution because it's become a crisis. They never exactly. wanted to deal with it a year ago, five years ago, because they were dealing with the crises from five years ago. But right. now this is the crisis, so we have to do something immediately, even though this to took immediate. a decade to get here. Precisely. And so we often end up spending far more money than we even would have if we'd handled this more thoughtfully and over a longer period of time. I think this is one of the biggest challenges for police chiefs is to be able to show the courage to say we're not going to do that and to be able to educate community including electeds about here are the alternatives to this and this is why it's important to consider these alternatives and to support us in doing that. Is the need for more time something that you think is really important? I think it's incredibly important. Almost all of these problems are, they are complex and multifaceted. They require partnerships, building partnerships and trust. You know, again, these have become buzzwords that mean almost nothing in a lot of places. But to really build a true partnership, a true relationship that allows you to solve a problem or at least make headway with it, it takes time. These, are, these become wicked problems right. that, are, that have multiple facets to That's them. That's right. You can't just do it overnight. And if you do, you're probably going to do it in a way that is really not sustainable. How um, does the chief do important. that? Because elected officials work, their brains work in election cycles. You know, they need to do something, they need to show the benefits so they can get reelected. Um, we can see that in national politics as well as anything else. Just how then do police chiefs find a way to articulate for the need for more time and nuance and complexity in responses when we're dealing with people in city councils? You know, before they got elected, they were realtors. They drove well, trucks, you know. Look, I'll say this, and maybe at my own peril with some of my colleagues, but I don't think we approach the political world with the respect that it deserves. I think in policing, we have almost, we have reinforced with each other the idea that politics is dirty and our goal is to stay as far away from it as possible in everything that we do. You know, I've heard people say that the politics is the worst part of the job. You know, I, if I could just do this job without the politics. Now, see, I look at it a little bit differently. To me, the politics is the best part of the job because the politics is where the action is. I'm not talking about politics with a capital P, the Republican or the Democrat or any given person who's running for office, uh, any of that. I'm talking about politics as a process for making change and getting things to work differently. We are in a political world. Politics is what informs our budgets. It is what informs 
the way that we're staffed. It is how we get people to understand what's important. So I think we need to get more sophisticated and it can't just be the chief or a couple of people at the top. It has to be a broader group of people in the police department, sometimes right down to the line level, who are really involved in working with elected leaders, but also sort of the power brokers in the community, which can include neighborhood leaders and others. This has to be done day in and day out. So what you're saying is even though when you speak to most police officers of, of any rank, they would sooner remove their own appendix in the back of a patrol car than go to a community meeting. They need to reframe that kind of perspective and think about the community meeting as actually being the place where they can achieve some of the goals they can't otherwise achieve. Right. I, I would actually even take it to a next level, which is I, I think we have a lot of cops. Okay, maybe a lot is a, is a hopeful exaggeration on my part, but I think we have quite a few officers and supervisors who would say, I don't mind going to a neighborhood meeting. I, I like the people in the neighborhood I serve. I enjoy talking to them, but by and large, what their idea of engagement at a neighborhood meeting is to read off a bunch of crime stats or tell a few anecdotes about a success here or there. They don't see the potential for really getting neighbors involved as a political force to make change. Some of the community meetings that I attend and go along and, and observe, the overarching theme of all of them seems to be a, a lack of focus. I'm yes. not sure what, what is the point of the community meeting there. And I, I think if exactly. you ask 10 cops, you would get 11 answers because by the time the 10th person has answered, the first person has changed their mind. I don't think anybody really has got to the core of what is it the police department is trying to achieve with community meetings. No, that, that is dead on. But that's our fault as police leaders, I think. It is very unrealistic to think that we're going to send cops out to neighborhood meetings, which, and I think they should be part of those meetings, but if they don't know what is the purpose, what are we working towards, how could we work together to do something different, how could we apply, what are, the, what are the pressure points even to apply? Sometimes it's applying the right sort of pressure with elected officials, but sometimes it's applying it in different places in the community beyond just that, right? You know, we lack the sophistication and the communication skills to do that. Cops are such good salespeople. When they believe in something, they can have such a compelling impact on a community or on others. Yeah. We so underuse the, the capabilities that cops have to create change in a way that could be beneficial to a community or a system. Well, it often ends up being the amorphous, go to the meeting and build a relationship. And I immediately have two questions with that. And the first of which is, do you have any evidence that you are actually improving and building a relationship? Because we often don't survey people, we don't see if there's actually an improved relationship. Right, and then towards what end? That's why, right, what, why, why, what, what are you doing point? with What do you this? want with that? When right. you have this relationship, yeah, right. how are you going to leverage right. it into some benefit the for the point community? Of it? Yes. Right. And, and I think this, this really comes full circle to what we're talking about because whether it is crime reduction or whether it is addressing some of these factors that contribute to crime, if we don't have some specific strategies in mind and ideas about, okay, well, what do we want you to do to help us? 
then it does feel like an exercise in public relations. Not that that's always entirely bad. To be honest, I would draw a parallel to we have a raised bed garden at home during much, much of the much year. Much better on the lower back, right? Yes, exactly. And and during much of the year, it needs to be fertilized with like compost and other kinds of stuff. You're not, nothing is really growing at that point. Uh, there are many months, frankly, in Tucson where, yeah, nothing's going to grow in a garden. The sun would kill it, it all. It already but sounds terrifying. It is not that bad. If this Tucson's a lovely place. But 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 I'm saying, you know, you are, you are composting a garden and there's value to doing that. You're enriching the soil. I think of that in terms of cops going to these meetings and just getting to know people and creating a level of confidence between the public and themselves. If we're not taking it any further than that, again, what's the point? Are we just wasting people's time? But this is tough work. It really is. This is uh, this requires culture change both in the police department and in the community. And culture change requires time. In the Reducing Crime book, there's a vignette from a chief inspector from Scotland who says the same thing. You know, investing in this relationship when things are going well, so we can tap into that relationship when things go south. What has always fascinated me, attending many more council meetings than I'd like to lay claim to over the course of my career, is how all it takes is, shockingly sometimes, a handful of people, maybe even one or two from the community to come and say something and completely move things in a different direction. Now, on the one hand, that can be really frustrating if, if you thought you were already moving something the right way and if now that's being disrupted by people who know nothing about what you're talking about. On the other hand, if you have community members that really understand what needs to be done and are in your corner, they have more legitimacy than you do as a police professional to come and council pays more attention to them than they do all the department heads in the world. Well, I've seen, I've seen some videos from your city council meetings. So can I just say that I'm superbly impressed that you make any headway whatsoever. You've got singing women and banjo playing guys and... Tucson has a very diverse population and they express themselves in many creative ways. That so, is wonderfully you know. put. <laughs> Well, Chris, look, this has been a pleasure, and I don't want to drop you in it with gazillions of visitors, but police chief would benefit from coming and seeing what you guys are doing, what you and Colin and uh, Eric and Chad and everybody's doing in Tucson, because I think you're really pushing the boundaries and dealing with some of these tricky areas and really just thinking about how to move the department forward. So uh, I hope I don't set you up for a gazillion visitors, but yeah, I think well, people would benefit uh, from really seeing what, what you guys are doing. Well, we, we always welcome visitors, but we are really fortunate because one of the great things, despite now all the fear you've put into people's hearts about the, the deadly uh, Yeah, just don't get out of the car. Yeah, uh, yeah <laughs> it's not true. But all of that aside, we're lucky because we really do have an environment where we can take a little bit more time, where we have, we have electeds and a city manager who have said, okay, well, let's try to reinvent government a little bit and go forth and do good. And that is very rare. And so we're, we're maximizing our chances to do that. Good stuff. Chris, thanks ever so much. <laughs> I appreciate bet. it. A pleasure. You've been listening to episode 20 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Chicago in October 2019. Other episodes lurk at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>